Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of abortion and sexuality. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, it's my podcast anniversary. I am so thrilled that Do We Know Things is officially a year old this week. I started this podcast on November 25th, 2019 for my 40th birthday. Before launching, I came up with a list of 40 topics about sex that I had made assumptions about or things I thought were misunderstood. Since then, I've covered so many topics. Many came from the original 40, like investigating whether or not only 25% of women have orgasms from intercourse alone or whether you have to pee to prevent urinary tract infections. Some just emerged from conversations with friends, podcast guests, and listeners, like episode 15 on consent and rejection. It's been a busy year creating this podcast, and a weird half a year tainted by COVID-19. For this episode, I wanted to do a bit of a review. First, I'll have an update from episode 7, What Do You Need to Know About Abortion, with Dr. Tasia Alexopoulos. Tasia will join me to discuss updates in abortion news since that last episode. I also went through all the episodes for this year to come up with a list of my top five sex myths that I've busted so far on this podcast. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first... After the last episode on pubic hair, I had a fair amount of questions from listeners about that topic. I might even have to do a whole additional episode to answer all the questions. One topic I will address here, because I think it'll be fun, is more about merkins. A merkin is a pubic wig, and I mentioned briefly on the last episode that they were used in the past for various reasons. In the modern world, they're mostly worn by actresses who want or need to cover their vulvas. Apparently, viewing a real-life vulva can change the rating of a film, so many people use them to add some coverage on their genital area. And some people just prefer to have them so that they are a little less nude on screen. One question I got about merkins was how they are applied. With a little bit of Googling, I found that most are applied with spirit gum, the same stuff that's used to attach fake beards. And spirit gum has been around since at least the 1870s, but I'm not sure how they were attached before that. Currently, medical adhesive could also be used. But either way, you have to remove all of your actual pubic hair to be able to attach a merkin. It seems sort of counterintuitive, doesn't it? I also reached out to art historian Dr. Anne Koval with an email titled Random Question to ask for confirmation about the research I'd come across on the lack of pubic hair in art history. Although I thought my question was a bit odd, Dr. Koval assured me that it was a perfectly normal thing to talk about in art history. She told me that the tradition of not painting or sculpting women's pubic hair went even further back in Western history to the ancient Greeks and Romans. There were some works, such as paintings by Corbett, that did include pubic hair, but it was considered erotica. In her email to me, Dr. Koval said, pubic hair was regarded as giving the power of the sexual to the body. So by not representing the female with hair, she was left unempowered and not owning her sexuality. 
She also pointed out that, by contrast, some Japanese art during the same period did show pubic hair for men and women, which can be seen as giving sexual agency to both genders. In Western art, pubic hair emerged by the end of the 19th century in some traditions, such as Expressionism, but most art still eschewed pubic hair on women. I feel like there's just still so much more to know about pubic hair. Back in February 2020, on episode 7, I was joined by Tasia Alexopoulos from the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada to discuss everything you needed to know about abortion. For the anniversary episode, I've invited Tasia back to give us some updates on the state of abortion access in Canada. Welcome back to the podcast, Tasia. Thank you so much for having me back. So what do we need to know about what's happening in the world of abortion? Oh boy, there's a lot happening in the world of abortion access. When you discuss doing this kind of follow-up, I kind of had like a brain explosion because so much has happened. (laughs) But in the same sense, it's kind of in the same line as what always happens. So for, for those of us who do this kind of work every year, it's nothing special. It's, you know, a lot of the same things that happen every year. Um, but there were some really big events, um, policy changes uh, that did occur this year. I mean, of course, a pandemic happened. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> so that's, you know, people might not think that the pandemic would affect things like abortion access, but it certainly has. So that's been a really big um a really big issue on everybody's mind in the abortion access world is how to continue doing this work during pandemic times. So there have been some pretty exciting changes in the kind of like law and policy world. So I thought I would just stop there or start there. Sorry. So one of the really exciting things that happened this year was that Nova Scotia passed the Protecting Access to Reproductive Health Care Act, um, and that was in March. Um, so NDP MLA Claudia Chender uh, proposed this act, and what it does is it protects uh, clinics, doctors' offices from protests, from anti-abortion protesters. Um, so there are bubble zone laws across Canada, and they're provincially mandated. Um, so if you are interested in the different bubble zone laws that exist, we have a a full list of them on the ARC website, um, but Nova Scotia didn't didn't have a really strong one. So this was a really exciting a really exciting move. And Claudia Chender did a lot of excellent activism um, and advocacy around abortion access um, while she was trying to pass this get this act passed. So that was in March. In September, Calgary City Council passed a bylaw um, that prevents advocacy signs on prob- public property near schools. This isn't as huge an issue for those of us who maybe live in the Atlantic provinces, um, but if you've ever been to Alberta uh, and you're driving anywhere in Alberta on a highway um, or in towns, uh, these very large billboards um, are really, really prevalent and they can have anything on them from, you know, like an ad for a restaurant to a quote from the Bible to a graphic anti-abortion image. So they they really like run the gamut. Um, but in September, Calgary City Bylaw passed a bylaw which prevents these signs on public property being near schools. Okay. Yeah. So that means that um, you can't display or carry something larger than a postcard um, within, I think it's 150 meters of a school. All right. On school days. So if you have a house across the street from an elementary school, 
you cannot put up a billboard with an anti-abortion message on it. It's, it's a really positive step forward in terms of uh, protecting kids who are at school, um, groups, anti-abortion groups often target schools. They'll stand outside, they'll try and give kids literature, um, they'll speak to kids, especially teens, um, who they perceive mm. as being quite vulnerable to, to, to their beliefs. So it's a really big problem in Canada. A lot of the things that we're seeing happening are happening at kind of the city level, like city councils, um, and those are often pushed forward by citizens. So, you know, if you're in a town that has a really big problem with flyers or with billboards or anything like that, um, you know, you can advocate to your city council to do something about it. And the Calgary example is a, is a really good example of that. Sadly, though, in October, <laughs> Alberta did something quite negative. Um, and the Alberta UCP, which is the United Conservative Party, voted against putting safe abortion in the Public Health Act. So this was really disappointing, but not surprising. Um, and MP Sarah Hoffman was pushing to have abortion put into the Public Health Act, and she was really vocal about the UPC's, um, or sorry, UCP's um, pushes against that. So, so that was kind of a negative thing. In Lethbridge in October, uh, the Court of Queen's Bench of Alberta ruled that the city of Lethbridge acted unreasonably when it banned pro-life ads on buses, bus shelters, and benches. This was a huge blow to the Lethbridge pro-choice organizations, and they have a really great organization there. The idea that it's unreasonable to disallow misinformation, <laughs> essentially, is, is really uh, disappointing. So... They're still pushing, um, pushing on that front um, in Lethbridge. So if you go on Facebook and just look up Lethbridge Pro-Choice, you'll find their group and they're really wonderful and they could use support from all across Alberta and Canada. As happens every year, all the time, this is not new. There's been a lot of um, dissatisfaction and anger around anti-abortion flyers being distributed to people's homes across the country. And these are usually um, distributed by the Center, Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform, so the CCBR. Um, and they are very graphic. They are usually trifold pamphlets. So you have an anti-abortion image on the front uh, and on the back and then information in the middle. So you can't actually avoid seeing these really terrible and false images, right? The, they never actually have real images on these pamphlets, they'll say, oh, this is a six-week fetus when actually what's there is perhaps 24 weeks. Wow. Um, or in some instances, sometimes they're just fake. They're like dolls. <laughs> so if there's a very tiny fetus on an image and its limbs are proportionate, uh, it's usually a doll because <laughs> wow. that's not how fetuses look. Um, so that's been really all across Canada, but we're seeing some really interesting um, and powerful movement against that in Ontario right now. So um, in London and in Cambridge area, um, there are some new groups popping up who are really pushing to have not only the London City Council ban the imagery or to at least rethink how to deal with the imagery, um, but there's also a provincial, um, a provincial and a federal petition. The provincial one is asking, of course, for the province to uh, act on graphic imagery. And what they're asking for um, is that flyers that are distributed, A, respect the no flyer 
Mm. Um, protocol. So if you are on a no mail list, if you say no flyers, um, that you shouldn't be receiving these flyers, which they of course often flout, but that they be labeled with a viewer discretion um, advisory. Um, And so the group that's really active right now around this is called, if you go on Facebook and you look up viewer discretion legislation, and it would make it impossible or it would ban putting the graphic imagery right on the front where children can see it or people who have recently lost pregnancies can see it or someone who just doesn't want to see that super graphic imagery, um, which Mm -hmm. I think is a really um, nuanced approach to this flyer issue. It's not banning the flyers. Um, It's saying what we need is some some reason here. We need it to be reasonable, which I think is a really um, smart approach. So in November, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association announced that it's going to sue the New Brunswick government. Um, so we talked about Clinic 554 in Fredericton, New Brunswick in episode seven. And what's happened since then is the clinic has been closed. Mm-hmm. So at the end of September, after months of really impressive activism across the country, um, and not just you know, uh, pro-choice activists or pro-abortion activists, but really just like such a wide spectrum of people, politicians, um, really pushing for the government to uh, repeal regulation 8420 and fund abortions at Clinic 554. The government just completely ignored everyone. (laughs) Yes. Yes. They wouldn't respond to calls for meetings from anyone. They wouldn't meet with the doctors. They wouldn't, they they literally pretended like nothing was happening. Um, so there was just a real groundswell of, of excellent activism. Um, but unfortunately, the clinic did close at the end of September. It seems like all reasonable attempts have been made uh, to to communicate with the with the Higgs government and being reasonable has not worked. So now mm-hmm. it has to move to a lawsuit. Um, something that's happening right now is that the second reading of Bill C-233 is coming up next week, and that is a private member's bill to ban sex-selective abortion in Canada. Um, this is something that um, usually conservatives have tried to push in the past. Um, so for folks who don't know what that means, uh, sex-selective abortion means that you are um, terminating a pregnancy based on the gender or sex of the fetus. So the idea that sex-selective abortion is an issue in Canada is really, it's really quite laughable. Um, this is a way of trying to penalize those who access abortion. Um, it's It has nothing to do with an actual problem or that's happening in this country. Uh, mm-hmm. Sex-selective abortion, there's almost no statistics on it. It's it's not something that doctors are, that abortion providers are like, hey, yeah, sure. It's, it's really a non-issue here. And so the fact that it's being pushed so hard um, speaks to a desire to further the, further the agenda to criminalize abortion in general. Um, mm-hmm. So if Bill C-233 was passed, it would mean that you could get up to five years in jail for procuring a sex-selective abortion. It's under the pretense of fighting uh, gender discrimination, essentially. So the private member's bill says that sex selection, 
sorry, sex selective abortion um, undermines gender equality in Canada. Um, but what it in fact will do is harm and violate people's rights. And it, right. it opens that door to more abortion restrictions. So right now we don't have any law or legal restriction in Canada around abortion and we need to keep it that way. But the, the second reading is next week. So people can contact their local representatives, their provincial representatives, their federal representatives, and, um, ask their member of parliament specifically to vote against the bill on its second reading. Something that happened in October, which was didn't get really any media attention and was very surprising. When I read about it, I was shocked because I had not seen it, the story anywhere. So in October, um, a gentleman named Mark Conrad, uh, who lives in London, Ontario, got an anti-abortion flyer in the mail and he could see the people who had brought it to him. So he took it and went to give it back to them. And they were very angry and they said they couldn't take it back because of COVID. <laughs> um, and when they refused to take it back, he started to follow them and eventually he started to videotape them. Videotaping people is something anti-abortion folks do all the time. If you're at an anti-abortion protest, uh, if you're doing at any kind of event, they're always recording. Mm -hmm. um, but for some reason, they really took offense to the fact that he was videotaping them, so they called the police. Uh, the police arrived, and after a conversation with him where they told him he was being ridiculous, um, he was you know bothering these people, he was handcuffed and put in the back of a cruiser. Oh, wow. Now, what's really interesting about this is that not only did the police come and do something about it, which is very rare when you call about an anti-abortion protest, for example, um, they rarely show up. Um, but the two people distributing uh, flyers were white and Mark Conrad is a black man. Mm. Of course, there's been always tension and charge around uh, racial inequality issues. Um, but this is really in the kind of like the midst of um, another kind of wave of Black Lives Matter protests and focus on violence against Black men and women and trans folks. Um, and we have in the middle of London, Ontario, the police showing up and detaining a Black man for being a concerned citizen. You know, the, the face of the anti-abortion movement in Canada is really white. Mm -hmm. It's really, really white. They are able to capitalize on white privilege in the ways that they use their bodies on the streets all the time. So they can stand outside a clinic or a hospital and call people murderers um, and nothing happens to them. But these two white folks felt offended that somebody was trying to stop them and called the police knowing calling the police on black folks is extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. In a follow-up email, Tasia let me know that Mark Conrad was actually one of the people who founded the Viewer Discretion Advisory Group, discussed previously in this episode. Um, so other notable things that have happened in Canada in the past several months, uh, besides being in a horrible nightmarish pandemic, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is uh, in May, Pharma, which brings Mifigaimizo into Canada, which is abortion, a medication abortion, launched a super great patient resource called myabortionoptions.ca. Um, it tells you about medication abortion. Um, you can uh, get all of like your different options based on your date of conception. It's a super, super good resource. And it's really exciting that the company itself is offering it. And it's in both English and French. New Brunswick had an election recently, and the election focused very heavily on abortion access. But a lot of folks have been speaking out for a long time about this um, and have been 
uh, not only talking the talk, but walking the walk. And so it was really exciting to see that during this election. Um, one very big shout out um, should go to the MLA for Tanshamar Memram Cook, Megan Mitten, who not only during this election was very vocal about Clinic 554, but since her election, um, so this is her second term now. So when she was elected to her first term, in that during that term, she's been very vocal about abortion access in New Brunswick, and so has Jenica Atwin of the Green, both of the Green Party. So um, while lots of people came out in support during this election, uh, we really want to recognize the folks who've been putting in the hard work all along. One thing that is really positive about medication abortion during the pandemic is that it has become more accessible. Um, so for example. Uh, places where there's kind of a medication abortion desert, <laughs> uh, places like Kelowna, um, have, have now increased their ability to dispense and prescribe medication abortion. So because it's, it's less of, people are less likely to go to hospitals, to clinics right now because of that pandemic, um, there has been an increase in access in medication abortion uh, being available, which is great you know, abortion access anywhere during the pandemic is an essential service. Um, it has to continue being uh, provided no matter what. Um, so if people are in an, a place where it's not accessible and it should be, you know, there are organizations you can get in touch with, you can contact Action Canada, you know, with any movement forward, uh, we always have to remember that we have to keep pushing and we have to keep fighting to not only uh, maintain the access that we have, but expand the access that we need. So, you know, and that's something we witness happening every year over and over and over again. Thank you so much to Tasia for providing these abortion updates. A lot can happen in a few months. The Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada has info about many ongoing abortion-related petitions on their website at arcc-cdac.ca. You can also donate to them to continue their important work of fighting for abortion rights across the country. Now, on to the moment you've all been waiting for. My top five sex myths busted in the first year of the Do We Know Things podcast. Number five. Myth. All people with vaginas should be doing Kegels regularly. That is not true. On episode nine, What is a Kegel Anyway?, pelvic floor physiotherapist, aka Kegel expert, Katie Kelly, informed us that while strengthening the pelvic floor is important, and that's what Kegels often are used for, for some people, their pelvic floor is actually too tense and they need to learn to relax the floor. So there is no point in trying to flex your Kegel muscles if they are perpetually flexed already. If you're concerned about your pelvic floor, or if you pee when you sneeze, or have any pain in that region, I highly, highly recommend seeing a pelvic floor physiotherapist. Number four, myth. Penis size is important. On episode 19, Awkward Questions from Confused Guys, I reviewed the research on this topic and found that for heterosexual women at least, the majority aren't too concerned about penis size. Yes, there are absolutely some who say that penis size is important, but the majority in the multiple studies we talked about didn't think it was a big deal. There's so much more to sex than your penis. The research does show that people with penises are concerned about size, but those without who are having sex with those penises don't care nearly as much. Number three, myth. Virginity is important. In fact, virginity isn't real. 
On episode 22, student intern Julia Kaufman reviewed the history and background of the concept of virginity. It turns out that the idea of virginity shifts and changes over time, just like our understanding of things like hymens and purity. I really encourage you to check out that episode if you haven't heard it already. Julia goes into lots of detail. I've actually had some pushback about this particular myth from a colleague who sent me a bunch of research on animal sex, or lack thereof, which I will dig into and report back on in the future. But for now, I'm sticking to the statement that virginity isn't real. Number two. Myth. People with vaginas and clitorises should have orgasms from penile penetration alone. This actually wasn't a myth that I looked into. What I was looking for was the actual percentage of people who have orgasms from penetration alone versus people who don't. But it seems to me that in the general culture, this is still a myth that people think that people with clitorises can have orgasms from penetration alone. And for some people, depending on the sexual position or the location of their clitoris, they can have orgasms from penetration alone. But the vast majority of people with vaginas do not have orgasms without additional stimulation directly on the clitoris. In the very first episode of this podcast, I was explicitly looking into the research on the percentage of people who do and do not. And as I said in that episode, the definitive study hasn't really been done, but this estimate of only 25% being able to orgasm this way seems to be a reasonable estimate. And finally, number one. The number one myth that I busted this year, according to me, is that peeing after sex prevents UTIs. There is no evidence that this is true. I discuss on episode 11, to pee or not to pee, my annoyance at medical professionals still recommending that people with vaginas pee after sex, while at the same time saying there's no evidence that it does anything. UTIs are caused by bacteria, so the best way to prevent one is by all parties cleaning themselves before rubbing assorted body parts on one another. After is too late! Reviewing this research and finding out that peeing after sex does not prevent UTIs was truly my triumph of the year. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. <laughs>